A boundary of self-containment is something that you need to contain or stop doing. And what I've figured out over time is that there's two kinds of boundaries of self-containment. Welcome to episode 396 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Amy, Stephen, Nancy, Susan, Sheila, and Robin. They used the donation button on our website. Thank you, Amy, Stephen, Nancy, Susan, Sheila, and Robin, for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we would like to state that in this show, we represent ourselves rather than any 12-step program. During this show, we will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer. I am your host today, and joining me today is Barb. Welcome to The Recovery Show, Barb. Thank you. I ask everybody to bring a reading to open our discussion. You want to tell us about it and or read it? Sure. So this reading is called The Solution, and it's from the ACA program, which stands for Adult Children of Alcoholics and Dysfunctional Families, which, by the way, I never knew that I qualified for until... I got into the program. Shall I go right ahead and start reading it? Please do. One thing I will say is that what we're recovering from in that program is childhood trauma and typically codependence. Sometimes it's called adult child syndrome, but the solution is the name of this document. And the solution is to become your own loving parent. As ACA becomes a safe place for you, you will find freedom to express all the hurts and fears you have kept inside and to free yourself from the shame and blame that are carryovers from the past. You will become an adult who is imprisoned no longer by childhood reactions. You will recover the child within you, learning to accept and love yourself. The healing begins when we risk moving out of isolation. Feelings and buried memories will return. By gradually releasing the burden of unexpressed grief, we slowly move out of the past. We learn to reparent ourselves with gentleness, humor, love, and respect. This process allows us to see our biological parents as the instruments of our existence. Our actual parent is a higher power whom some of us choose to call God. Although we had alcoholic or dysfunctional parents, our higher power gave us the 12 steps of recovery. This is the action and work that heals us. We use the steps, we use the meetings, we use the telephone. We share our experience, strength, and hope with each other. We learn to restructure our sick thinking one day at a time. When we release our parents from responsibility for our actions today, we become free to make healthful decisions as actors, not reactors. We progress from hurting to healing to helping. We awaken to a sense of wholeness we never knew was possible. By attending these meetings on a regular basis, you will come to see parental alcoholism or family dysfunction for what it is, a disease that infected you as a child and continues to affect you as an adult. You will learn to keep the focus on yourself in the here and now. You will take responsibility for your own life and supply your own parenting. You will not do this alone. Look around you and you will see others who know how you feel. We love and encourage you no matter what. We ask you to accept us just as we accept. 
accept you. This is a spiritual program based on action coming from love. We are sure that as the love grows inside you, you will see beautiful changes in all your relationships, especially with God, yourself, and your parents. Thanks for the reading, Barb. I understand that that some of that speaks to my life. I'm sure it speaks to your life. So why don't uh, we start with a little bit about how you got to where you are now? Okay. I am 59, and when I was 52, I hit a codependent bottom and found myself in recovery. I had never heard the word codependent, and I was talking about my friend Dan, who was a homeless person who started attending my church right around the same time that I had volunteered to lead a project serving homeless people. And I felt it was like, ooh, divine intervention. God is bringing me a homeless person to know as a friend so that when I'm serving homeless people, they're like people, not just the homeless. One time during a snowstorm, I invited him to stay in my home, and he did. And then he stayed another time and another time. And then by a few months later, he was practically living with me, and I felt trapped in my home. I was talking about him one day in therapy and in the middle of a sentence I stopped and went well like do you think I need to go to Al-Anon and my therapist said yes and I'll tell you Spencer I don't know what I googled but I was looking for Al-Anon and then I came across the word codependent and I had been in therapy starting at about age 15 not continuously but that's almost 37 years of therapy I read a gajillion self-help books. I did workshops, workbooks, group groups, retreat, like you name it. And I had never heard this word. And I was like, how is this possible? And it really describes me. And so I got into recovery for codependence. And very quickly, I remember saying to someone who may have been Dan, I think I need to be reparented. But I thought I made that up. I didn't know that was a thing. Hmm. And ab- about six weeks into my time in the codependent recovery program, I went to go visit a friend in Cape Cod who had been in AA for years and just had, since I met her, she just raved about how her life got so turned around by AA. So I told her about, I'd been going to CODA and she said, Hey, let's see if we can find a meeting here while you're visiting and I'll go with, I'll take you. So I said, okay. And she couldn't find one, but she found an ACA meeting. And I was like, whatever, I'll go for you because I didn't identify. I think if you had asked me, were you from a dysfunctional family? I probably would have said yes, but it's not like I walked around going um, from a dysfunctional family. Definitely didn't identify as the child of an alcoholic, but she was an adult child of an alcoholic. So we walk into the meeting and they say, we reparent ourselves. And I was like, what? And then the other thing they did was they read the list of the 14 traits of an adult child, which is affectionately called the laundry list. And at the time, I identified with seven of those items and I was blown away. It turns out I actually have 13 of those. I was in such denial. I didn't really understand it. So I bought the literature. I came home to New Haven. I continued to go to both of those programs for a year. And then after about a year, the first program It was maybe a 75% fit for me, whereas ACA was 100% fit. It was a brutal year. It was very difficult because one of the things we do in that program in step four is we look at what happened to us, not just what we did, what happened to us. Because in ACA, we understand we're a product of our environment. And so digging through all this stuff and starting to understand like how dysfunctional my family was and especially how dysfunctional I was, was really difficult for me. 
I stopped going to the other program and it turned out that that was an intervention by my higher power because I went to a Monday night meeting for that fellowship. And right around that time, I was hitting bottom with sugar. And luckily for me, one of the women that I was doing the steps with in ACA had started going to OA and had started talking in our group about the way she was thinking and acting about food, which I was like, I didn't know other people had the same thoughts and behaviors. So just for a listener who might not be familiar, OA is Overeaters Anonymous. Do I have that right? Yes. Okay, thanks. So my friend was basically 12-stepping me into OA. That means she was carrying the message of recovery to me. Yeah. I didn't know that's what she was doing, but on... Wednesday, April 20th, 2016, I woke up and I felt like I was being internally electrocuted by sugar. Hmm. And I texted her and I said, I just have to tell somebody that just today I am not having sugar. I have not had sugar since that day. In that program, we call it abstinent. I've been abstinent and like by the grace of my higher power, the obsession and compulsion have been lifted. And in fact, today is my five-year anniversary of having reached my goal weight. I am down over 100 pounds from my top weight. And it's honestly been a pretty emotional day. I've shared a number of times today about it. And a couple of times I got real teary-eyed and started crying because it's just amazing to me is that Can I say congratulations? Thank you so much. And it's really not about the weight. Of course, it is so much better to be in a smaller, healthier body. But what's really incredible is the freedom. The freedom from the obsession, the freedom from the compulsion, and then all of the wonderful changes that I've made in my life as a result of the 12 Steps of Recovery. And I feel like I tried everything before I got into recovery. I just didn't know that I qualified for recovery. And so for me, the 12 steps of recovery are where it is at. I could talk about recovery 24-7. I practically do. (laughs) And I feel like all the other things I did before recovery, the workshops and the self-help and the therapy and all the things, scratched the surface of the iceberg, whereas recovery melted the iceberg in my life. Hmm. So that is about as short as I can make it in terms of telling (laughs) you how I got where I am now. As short or as long as it needs to be, that's what we want. Yeah. I know that you also have a podcast, and you've been doing it for a little while, haven't you? Yes. In fact, today I recorded my 200th episode. It will be coming out on February 20th, 2023. It's called Fragmented to Whole, Life Lessons from 12-Step Recovery. And it's named that because that has been my experience in recovery. I have this notion when I look back at my life before recovery that I was a bunch of these fragmented pieces floating around in space, which meant other people's shit could leak into my those spaces. And for me, the process of recovery for a variety of reasons has been the integration of all of those fragments into one coherent whole. So some of those fragments weren't even authentically me and those are gone, but the rest of them have been integrated into one coherent whole. And the way that I think of it is I can be rocked by things that happen to me, but I can no longer be shattered by them the way that I used to 
because I am whole. And one of the reasons why I believe I was so fragmented is that I was a people pleaser. So that meant I was a chameleon Mm -hmm. and I had all these different facades up. And so that led to fragmentation. Another reason is that I lied a lot. I lied about abs, about some like cigarettes, alcohol, drugs, code, mostly people pleasing. That was my main thing, but lied about a bunch of things. But I really thought I was an honest person. And so the way I think of it now is when you lie or you do things that are out of alignment with your personal principles, you chip away at your integrity. And another word for integrity is Wholeness. Wholeness. Right. So I've reclaimed my wholeness by living in alignment with my values, by practicing these principles in all my affairs. I like that image you painted of being in fragments so other issues, other people, other stuff could leak in between the parts of you. It makes a lot of sense, that picture, mm-hmm. and that pulling together I'm trying to remember exactly what you said because it struck me that when something happened, you didn't fly apart or something like that. I said I can be rocked by things that happen to me, but I can't be shattered by them the way that I used to because I'm whole. I'm whole. Wow. It just makes so much sense to me. I had never thought about it that way, really, which I think in a way brings us to the topic that you had brought to me, which is boundaries. Because when I have a good, healthy boundary that also holds me together, Mm. let me rephrase that. When I don't have good boundaries, there are pieces of me that are out all over the place because I'm Mm -hmm. injecting myself into other people's business because I think it's mine. Yeah, I think boundaries have everything to do with my wholeness. When people say to me, how did you go from 50-something years of no boundaries to building boundaries? When I reflect on it, I think the core, Spencer, was that I started to care more what I think of me than what other people think of me. And this doesn't mean I don't care at all what other people think of me. Of course I do. (laughs) But what I mean is I was willing to throw my integrity out the window and say, oh, yes, I'd be happy to do that when I wasn't. Or act like I didn't like things that I actually liked because I was afraid to be judged by them. It wasn't even so much that I wanted people to like me. It was that I wanted their approval. So I wanted them to think I was nice or that I was kind or I was generous or whatever it was. And now I care so much more about my own integrity as an honest woman of dignity and grace then that I care that you will like me. It doesn't mean I don't want you to like me. I would like you to, but I don't need you to like me the way that I used to. Mm -hmm. And here's what's happened in this process of forming healthy boundaries, integrating all these fragments and building my integrity. I like me. Mm -hmm. And so you liking me is a bonus. I will say about that, I have always had high self-esteem. I think I've always liked myself. What's clear to me from recovery is I didn't love myself and I didn't have healthy self-worth. Because if you look at my pattern of behavior in terms of how I treated myself and the kind of relationships I got into and the situations I got into and the 
drama that I created and participated in, that is not the behavior of a woman who really values herself and feels worthy. For me, forming boundaries, the way I think of it is I've learned what are the boundaries of Barb? Who is the actual me? What do I like? What do I want? What do I need? What do I prefer? So I had to figure that out. And to me, forming healthy boundaries is this experimental process because you're like, well, I actually don't know what I like because I've been saying yes. So an example is I happen to be a heterosexual woman. So all the people I've dated have been men, many of whom have been football fans. So I have been a Dallas Cowboys fan twice. I have been a New York Giants fan. I have been a Patriots fan. I think I was also a Jets fan for a while. Meanwhile, I don't really care about football. I don't like football. But I didn't even allow myself to know that because to me, being a good girlfriend is you like the team that your boyfriend likes and you watch the games with the boyfriend and and all that stuff. And now I'm like, I don't care about that stuff. But I didn't really know that about myself. And that's just one teeny tiny little example of really discovering who I really am. So I have a little football story that for years, I was like, I don't like football. I'm not interested in football. Partly, I think, because the attitude of a lot of the people around me, right? So football was not something I was interested in because I wasn't supposed to be. I see. And whatever kind of person I am, an intellectual academic or something, I don't know. I don't try to analyze those things too much. But what happened was I had friends who did enjoy football, and I would sometimes spend some time with them watching a game, and I started to appreciate it. And I started to understand it. And it's still not something that I'll go out of my way for. I'm not somebody who will spend $100 on a football ticket and another $100 on a tailgate beforehand. But if somebody invites me to go to a game or come watch a game, I probably will. So that's the opposite of your discovery in a a sense. But both of them are I was trying to conform to what I thought the people around me expected. Yeah, me too. And I have a story like yours about the Hallmark Channel. Ah. So I love Hallmark movies. And for the first few years, I was like a closeted Hallmark movie watcher. I didn't want people to know because I thought, oh, they're going to judge me. They're going to think it's sappy. Here's the thing. It is. It's sappy. Oh, well, I like it. And this is actually a good illustration of my recovery. Before recovery, I watched things like CSI, Law and Order, Criminal Minds, and now I watch the Hallmark Channel, right? Because I was used to my internal system being revved up all the time and sitting on the edge of my seat, and that was normal to me. And now it's, oh, isn't that sweet? That's normal to me. And I also honestly learned a lot about healthy relationships and communication by watching Hallmark movies because there's a lot of breakups that happen in Hallmark movies, but nobody's slamming doors and stalking people and MFing people. But people have direct communication. They say things like, this isn't working out, but I really want the best for you. And I was like, people talk like that? And I knew that these are characters and it's a movie, but human beings wrote that dialogue. Somebody came up with that. Yeah. That's something some humans say. 
And, and I just really enjoy it. And I don't care if other people go ahead and judge me. Go ahead. It's okay. Cause I still get to enjoy my Hallmark movie. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I was thinking about the thing you said about how your piece is going out when you don't have a good boundary in place. And I would call that kind of boundary a boundary of self-containment. A boundary of self-containment is something that you need to contain or stop doing. And what I've figured out over time is that there's two kinds of boundaries of self-containment. Many of boundaries of self-containment only affect me. Nobody else ever even needs to know about them. For example, when I put a boundary of self-containment around my negative self-talk, nobody else needs to know that's happening. It's a boundary for me. I don't ever have to talk. I mean, I tell people about it because I coach people on boundaries. Or I used to give away personal and private information to people that didn't have the the right to learn private things about me. And I put myself in vulnerable, unnecessarily vulnerable situations. So those are examples of boundaries of self-containment. Those are things I need to contain or stop doing, but they really only affect me. But then there are other boundaries of self-containment that affect me and other people. So gossiping is a good example. That was one of my worst defects of character, which I was shocked to learn. You, you didn't didn't think you were a gossip. No. And what's really interesting, Spencer, is here's what I did. For 19 years, I had the same boss who I loved dearly, but I also talked negatively about her behind her back, which is the definition of gossip. Yeah. But I didn't understand that was gossip, which is crazy. And I'm not dumb. So when I contain my gossiping... Yeah. It does affect me, of course, because I'm me and I'm the center of my life, but it affects everybody around me. And actually, I'll go on to tell you what happened because I was still working there when I got into recovery. When I stopped gossiping, I found that my resentment against my boss went down by, I don't know, 90% or something crazy like that. So it's not that she wasn't doing anything difficult, but I was magnifying that by talking about it all the time. And here's the other thing, because I was there longer than everybody else and I had a purview over our projects larger than anybody but her, me talking negatively about her created a culture of expectation in which we don't solve problems, we talk about them. So nobody ever went to her and said, hey, you know what, this isn't really working for us. Can we talk about what we can do to change things? No, we never did that. We just complained about her behind her back and we made the problem worse and worse and worse. And what would also happen is like when we had meetings, if she wasn't there, we would just sit around and complain about her. Meanwhile, we would run into each other in the hallway and talk about work stuff that we should have been talking about in the meeting, but we were too consumed with talking about her. As you can see, for me, that boundary of self-containment not only affected me, but my entire organization that I worked with. When you said that that boundary affected other people before you went into some more detail. I was thinking like, okay, so I've been gossiping with my coworkers, which is certainly a thing that has happened. And now I've decided that I'm not going to do that. And so when they try to engage me, I have to say, no, I'm not doing that or whatever. And they're going to be like, oh, that guy, he's whatever. But what I heard you say, and maybe you can tell me if I heard correctly or not, that in fact, when you stopped engaging in gossip, the character of the workplace improved? 
Absolutely. And I did go to my smaller team of people that I was closer with and speak to them and say, listen, I know you all know that I'm in recovery. I'm changing my ways. What I have learned is that I gossip about our boss and I need to stop. It's got to stop. And so I'm hoping that you will help support me in this Mm -hmm. and that you will do me the favor that if you hear me gossiping about her, you will wave a finger. Don't say anything to me because I don't know that I'll be able to handle it. But if you wave a finger to me, then I'll get it. And what I was doing, Spencer, was not only asking for their support, but I was alerting them, I'm not going to be participating in this anymore. Very healthy. Oh, it was incredible. And then what ended up happening was I was also realizing I was expecting her to change, obviously. That's the unrealistic expectation. And so when I got, she's not changing. I said, okay, I do have a measure of authority here. And I took it upon myself to call together this small team and say, okay, I really want to change the way that we communicate so that when we have a meeting, we're actually talking about work. And then if we happen to run each other in the hall, then we can just chat. We don't have to have a quote meeting in the hallway. So we started having a check-in meeting for 15 minutes every Monday. And then we had a bi-weekly team meeting every Wednesday. And I said, okay, on the off Wednesdays, will this small team will meet. But if nobody has anything to meet about on either of those dates, we will not be meeting. And then the other thing we're going to do is we're going to ask ourselves when we have a matter to discuss, who needs to be involved in this discussion? When do they need to know? And what's the best method of communication? So if it can wait until the Monday or Wednesday meeting, great, do that. But if it can't, if you have to call the person or stop in their office, the first words out of your mouth are going to be, do you have a moment? So that's respecting other people's boundaries by saying, do you have a moment? And it literally changed everything. And it started with me stopping gossiping and then seeing what happened when I stopped and how my resentment against her went down. And I started seeing, I am a gigantic part of the problem here. How about if I start being part of the solution? No kidding. So we talked about interior boundaries, but... There's also exterior boundaries. I call them boundaries of self-protection. Okay. Yeah. You have boundaries of, what was the first, what did you call them? Self-containment. Self-containment. Boundaries of self-containment and And boundaries of self-protection. Okay. So those are the things that I need to protect myself from the outside world, often other people, but it could also be environments like going into toxic environments or situations and stuff like that. One of the things I've learned, especially as I've done more and more coaching on boundaries, is one of the things that's really clear to people who know they don't have healthy boundaries, they're pretty clear other people are trampling on me. But what they're not clear about is that they are probably trampling on other people. So they are clear, I need boundaries of self-protection, but they're not so clear, I need boundaries of self-containment too. And so one of the quotes that I learned years before recovery that I thought I knew what it meant, but no, I didn't, is one that I use when I'm teaching people about these boundaries of self-protection. So it's a Chinese proverb, and it's this. It's easier to put slippers on your feet than to carpet the world. What that means is the world has sharp, jagged edges. And wouldn't it be nice to carpet the entire world so that I could walk around on a nice cushy earth. Well, that's ridiculous, right? So instead, 
it's a lot easier to just get slippers and put them on my feet, right? And so boundaries of self-protection is what is it that you need to do to cushion yourself from the world? So when people come to me, I think the number one myth I hear from people about boundaries is they think when I get boundaries, I'm going to be able to control other people. I'm going to be able to get people to stop doing the things they're doing that I don't want them to do. That's not a saying that doesn't happen. But as the serenity prayer says, we need to get the wisdom to know the difference between what we can and cannot change. And boundaries, to me, that's learning what the boundary is. And then what do we need to accept? And we need the courage to change the things we can. For me, a boundary of self-protection is I stay away from drugs, alcohol, and sugar. I don't go into dangerous neighborhoods. I don't go into toxic environments. Some of those boundaries I have to just completely stay away from, but I can't entirely stay away from, say, for example, mean people. Like mean people really scare me. And I think the reason they scare me is because there's no limit to what a mean person will do. So I can't turn somebody into not being a mean person, but I can get some distance from them. So let's say I work with somebody who's mean. If it got so bad, I would actually leave my job. Today, I would do that for myself. But I can limit the kinds of interactions that I have with them If I work in an organization where there's a human resources department that can deal with if they're harassing me or abusing me, then I can do something about that. But I don't have to just keep going, acting with them, expecting them to stop being mean, and then going and talking to everybody else around me about it, which is the kind of thing that I used to do. So what are the slippers that I can put on my feet so that I can protect myself. One of the things, because I'm in recovery, and because my history is a fixer, rescuer, saver, enabler person, I used to run towards people that were like needy and clingy and all that sort of thing. And of course, I'm still around people like that, but I don't feel like it's my job to save them. I'm willing to have a phone call with them or have a coffee with them or chat with them after a meeting but I'm not going to move next door to them and start driving them everywhere or let them, if they're homeless, move into my home the way I did with Dan. I I heard somebody say, probably on a podcast or I might have been a speaker. I still call them speaker tapes because I don't know what else to call them, even though they're MP3 files or whatever now. This person said, sometimes I've heard people say they have a bad picker and they keep picking the wrong people. I have a really good picker, and my picker picks the people who are bad for me. I was like, oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The way that I think of it is actually the first time I ever heard anybody besides me say picker, it was Andrea Ashley on the Adult Child Podcast. And I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe she said that. And the way I acted was like, I have this lever, Mm -hmm. and it's broken. I'm a bad picker. What I realized when I got in recovery, it's not just a bad picker. It's a bad holder on to. I I didn't just pick them bad. I picked them and then held on to them and then got mad at them for being the person that they were when I met them. Yeah, I had a quote, good picker too. I kept picking the same kinds of people. And I thought that the pattern of my relationships was emotionally unavailable men, and it was. But the real pattern was my codependence. 
And one of the things that I came to realize through doing the 12 steps is the reason that I attracted and was attracted to men who were emotionally unavailable was because I was emotionally unavailable. So no emotionally available man is going to be attracted to a woman who is emotionally unavailable. And through the process of recovery, I've become emotionally available first to myself and then to the other people around me. And I am lucky enough that I am for the first time in my life in a really healthy relationship and we've been together for four years. And it's, I had no idea that this kind of friendship and intimacy and vulnerability was possible in a romantic relationship with a man. And absolutely, I'm over the moon about him. I love him. We were like literally like teenagers. Like last night, I heard the song Teenage Dream by Katy Perry. Mm-hmm. And I said to him, I'm going to play this song when I come over and I'm going to sing it to you because I feel and like I'm 59 and he's 64. And I'm like, I feel like we're teenagers, but it's like better, better than teenagers because we're not awkward and inhibited the way that we used to be. You have a little bit of life experience behind you. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I hear from listeners to the podcast when they write about boundaries in particular, not understanding how do I set a boundary on somebody else's behavior? And I'm going to rephrase it with the wording that you just gave us. How do I set a boundary to protect myself from the effects of somebody else's behavior on me? Is that the way you would think about it? Yeah. So I'm going to use my brother as an example. My brother is a very loud person. He doesn't talk. He yells. And he also talks about politics all the time. And I, right before I got into recovery, stopped listening to the news. And I still don't to this day because I realize it is not good for my mental health. So when I first got into recovery and I was experimenting with this thing called boundaries, I realized I don't like his loudness. I don't like him talking about, I never liked him, but it never occurred to me that I didn't have to deal with that. So I'd be like, I put my hands in my ears and I'd be like, Hey, your loudness is really hurting my ears. And I don't want to talk about politics. And so I was trying to control him and turn him into someone who doesn't talk about politics and someone who doesn't yell. And he's literally incapable. Like I said it over and over and over again. And when I started realizing, oh, what are the slippers that I need to put on my feet? And so what I found was that I had to spend much less time with my brother. Mm-hmm. And I started with a 90-minute window, and then I was like, I think it's more like a 60-minute window. And I also <laughs> spent the time with him much fewer and farther between. I think the classic example is if you have an addict or an alcoholic in your life, like you can say, okay, you can't drink anymore. Well, good luck with that, right? Yeah, good luck with that, exactly. But the boundary is, if you continue to drink, I'm going to, and what is it that you're going to do? I am no longer picking you up. I am no longer buying you stuff. I am no longer giving you money. I'm no longer doing your laundry. I'm no longer bailing you out. I am no longer answering the phone when your boss, I'm no longer lying for you. What is it that you are no longer going to do? Make it harder. Stop making it easier for them. I realized in the situation with my brother, it never occurred to me that I didn't have to just deal with whatever the onslaught of whatever he was flailing at me. And when I started to realize that I could have, so to me, a boundary is a standard. I think that's one thing that I've realized 
It's a standard that I have for my life. The part that most people think about when it comes to boundaries is where you communicate that standard to other people. But Mm -hmm. sometimes I'm not going to say to my brother, my standard is that I like quietness and I don't like drama. Like, I don't say that to him. I did try to say to him, your voice is hurting my ears. Can you talk a little bit quieter and that sort of thing? But what is it that you're willing and able to put up with and still be at peace? Because I think for me, what I want most in life is peace. Peace and serenity, really. Mm -hmm. Actually, I was listening to one of your episodes today, and I loved the way that you talked about, I don't think you used this language, it was basically, am I going to allow that person to steal my serenity? That's how I think too. Like One of my biggest areas of difficulty in life that got cleaned up like that in recovery was driving. I Hmm. used to take all of my frustration from the world out in the car. And my therapist helped me to recognize that the reason I had these out of proportion reactions in the car was that I never told anybody when things bothered me. So I had all this buildup and it all came out in the car when I was alone and nobody else was affected by it. So I would lose it in the car. I think not only have I let other people steal my serenity, there have been times when I have absolutely given it away. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Okay. Me too. too. Yeah, absolutely. I do that by, for example, staying in a conversation. Sometimes they're more one-sided than that, but where it is stirring up something inside me. It is stirring up negative feelings inside me of sometimes fear, sometimes anger, sometimes I don't know what, but I'm just stirred up. And that gives away my serenity if I stay there. And so the action associated with it, that boundary of I want to keep my serenity, the action might be I move out of that situation. I disengage from that conversation. And depending on the situation, I might be able to say, I need to take the dog for a walk. Or if I'm in a large gathering of some sort, I might just be able to move on to a different group of people. Yeah. Or if, as happened this summer, I was in a car with the person who was stirring me up and I was driving. <laughs> so I couldn't run away. I couldn't change the situation. I was able to say, I wanted to stop this line of conversation because I'm going to get mad if we keep going this way. And I don't want to get mad. And the person who was riling me up, who happens to be one of my sons, accepted that. So that was good. (laughs) But I think partly it was because I made it about me, about how I was feeling, rather than about what he was saying. There have been times in the past where I've been in that situation And I did not disengage gracefully, but in fact, screamed at him to shut up. That didn't go so well, you know? For some reason, yeah. Yeah, for some reason. (laughs) So working ways of keeping to my standard, keeping my boundary, while preserving both my serenity and maybe the serenity of the other people around me. Because if I do something that somebody else gets pissed off about, I'm not going to say I made them get pissed off. Then 
I might actually owe an amends working a 12-step program, you know? So it's better for me to not go there, too, for many reasons. Right, yeah. Yeah. But all of that takes practice. Oh, yeah. All behavior change does. Yeah, absolutely. But now that I'm thinking about what you said, that giving away my serenity is a much better way to think about it. Because I was thinking about in the car, let's say one of my worst things was when somebody wouldn't let me in on the highway when I was entering on the ramp. Which there's some legit fear there too, right? Of course, but I would lose it way out of proportion. Or when someone like goes to swerve into me. And now, what do I do if somebody goes to pull into me? I slow down or I speed up, whatever I need to do. But I don't flip the hell out and lose my shit over it. Uh I'm just like, this is what's happening. So I was giving my serenity away to this stranger in a car that I don't know who that is. I'm never going to see them, but I'm going to allow that car driver over there to take away from my peace. And you're right. I did give it away to them. But the thing is that I was blaming them. Right. But it wasn't them. It's not like I've never pulled out in front of somebody ever before in my entire life. I've been driving for whatever, 40 something years. So just really understanding that I have a lot more control over my life than I used to. I think one of the things I've learned to say is I'm uncomfortable with this. And it's keeping the focus on me, which is what you were talking about, which is that's my number three tool of recovery. I've really learned to keep the focus on myself. And I say I'm uncomfortable. I'm giving them enough information without giving too much detail. Mm-hmm. And I'm keeping the focus on me. If they want to ask me, I could say I'm uncomfortable with this line of questioning or I'm uncomfortable with where this conversation's going. Or I could just say, you know, I just am. I'm just uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. So I think I'm going to go or whatever the thing is that I'm going to do. I don't have to tell them the full truth if I don't want. I need to tell the truth because I want to be a woman of integrity. But I don't need to tell them the full truth. Right. I actually call this the blurry truth which I came up with one day when I was talking with a sponsee because she was in rehab. She was 19 years old and her mom was paying for rehab. So her mom wanted to know every detail and she didn't want her mom to know like what she was talking about in therapy. And I was like, okay, you want to tell the truth, but you can tell, I go, let's call it blurry truth where you're saying things like, mom, I'm uncomfortable. I'm uncomfortable sharing my therapy with you. So you're telling her the truth. You're not lying to her but you're obscuring and keeping blurry what it is you don't want her to see because it's honestly none of her business. Yep, she's paying the bill, but she doesn't need to hear what's going on in your therapy sessions. No, absolutely not. I'm thinking of some much stronger words that could have come out in that situation. (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah, you talk about your three tools of recovery here. Yeah, I'd love to share them. I think of keeping this focus on me in four different ways. So one of them you already mentioned, which is what do I want and need right now or in this situation? That was not a question I ever asked. It was always like, what do you need? What does the situation need? What does the organization need? Like I was worried out there. So now like I've learned, wait, what actually, what do I want? Do I want to watch football? No, I don't. 
And then the second one is, am I minding my own business? So I used to give unsolicited advice to people all the time. And I just stay out of other people's business. If I really want to help someone, then I get consent from them. Would you like a suggestion? Would you like some help? Are you just venting or would you like some feedback? So I stay out of other people's business. Another way to keep the focus on myself is learning my part in things. What is my part here? Like for me, Spencer, that is the greatest gift of recovery. Learning what my part is in things means I can actually change it. Because if other people really are the problem, I'm screwed. But if they're not, then I can change, get the courage to change the things I can. And then the fourth way that I've learned to keep the focus on myself is to take really good care of myself. I abused the shit out of myself my whole life. And so the bulk of my self-care is conscious contact with my higher power. I have a pretty detailed spiritual practice in the morning and at night. And then I, because I'm in recovery for compulsive overeating, I ate three, three meals and two snacks a day. So I'm praying every time I'm eating. And then I also have a midday reminder that goes off to remind me to just make conscious contact. That's a huge part of my self-care. And so because I've been in very continuous contact, it's easy for me to reach out to God and ask for guidance or for help or to hand things over because I don't feel like I have to be in charge all the time. But I also take care of my physical body and I meditate and I journal and I do my daily readings from all my daily readers every day. I've kept a gratitude journal nightly for 22 years. And that was a really nice foundation for my recovery because I'm doing a journal thing every night. It's easy to do my nightly inventory. So for me, keeping the focus on myself is like that very detailed, like four different parts of it. And as a recovered, codependent, fixer, enabler, rescuer person, keeping the focus on me is just really, really important because I was so focused out there for so much of my life that really discerning these four different ways to keep the focus on myself has been really helpful for me. What are your other tools? I have a million of them. I think of that one as number three. I'll go backwards since we started with three. three. My number two tool is reaching out. And I mean that both in terms of my higher power and to other people. So I've already talked about reaching out to my higher power a couple of times. I was not capable of asking for help before recovery. And when I did the steps the first time, I did it in a group with three other women. We were all in our 50s and 60s. One day, one of us said to the group, oh, I was really upset the other day. I was going to call one of you guys and I talked myself out of it. Like, oh my God, I do the same thing. We We all talked about how we have the impulse to reach out for support and then we talk ourselves out of it. So we were like, oh my God, we're all doing that. So we made a pact. We are no longer talking ourselves out of reaching out for help. And then none of us reached out for help. That's how hard it is when you have been the helper your whole life. And so learning to reach out for help for me was a very humbling experience because what I realized in the process, one of the reasons it was so difficult was because I had this idea that it was weak. First of all, weak is not bad. Weak is just weak. It's not good or bad. It's just not strong, right? So there's that. 
And then the second thing is, if you think about weakness, like think about one person walking down the street by themselves, and then think about 10 people walking down the street holding hands. What's stronger? The 10 people holding hands. It's stronger to have help. There's more support there. And then what that made me realize is that even though I don't intellectually, like I know that I am no better than anybody else. I'm no better and no worse than anybody else on an emotional level. I realized that because of those thoughts about weakness and all that stuff, that on an emotional level, I thought somehow like I'm one up on the people I've been helping. So I'm like lowering myself by asking for help. Now, I don't intellectually believe that. So I had to get my emotions in alignment with my intellect and realize I'm not actually lowering myself. And I think that it came from now I can see I grew up in a dysfunctional family. It really wasn't safe to ask for help. It wasn't safe to be vulnerable. So one of the things I've had to discern in recovery is who are safe people? And the only way to know that is over time because trust is built over time. You have to see patterns of behavior to determine if someone is really trustworthy. And that can only happen over time. And so that reaching out for help. And let me tell you something. I love help. Oh my God, I love help. (laughs) And my sweetheart, Chuck, he doesn't work and I do. And so he has a lot of time on his hands. And so he helps me way more than I help him, which is a really different dynamic for me in my life. And I'm at the point where I'm comfortable with it. However, I will tell you, two weeks ago, I sprained my ankle. And I have since learned, I was originally told that it was a fracture. I might need surgery. I had to wear a boot for 68 weeks. Then I found out last week, not fractured, no surgery, no boot. Yay. But in the meantime... He was helping me out and he was here and he was doing stuff for me. And I got to the point where I was like, I had asked for help so many times that I was like, I'm having feelings about asking you for help. I'm having all these feelings. And I said, I know that I'm doing it and I know that I'm asking you for help and you're being so gracious about it, but I just want you to know that this is difficult for me. And he leaned over and he kissed me and he said, it is my pleasure. It was such a beautiful moment. So even though I'm so much better at asking for help, it's almost like I get to this point where I've done it so many times in a row because I was injured that it got to be difficult. The first few times were fine, but there was like this buildup. That's still there for me. And then my number one tool of recovery by far is pausing. Because I cannot use any other tools of recovery without pausing. I can't reach out to my higher power. I can't reach out to other human beings. I can't think about keeping the focus on myself. I feel like pausing and breathing is really the number one tool. Because one of the things that was said in the solution I read at the very beginning is that we go from being reactors to actors in our lives. I was a reactor my whole life. And you can't respond as opposed to react if you don't pause. And the way that I think about it is because of what I've learned about the trauma from growing up in a dysfunctional family, I grew up 
And I was in fight or flight mode most of my life. I think of that as being like in your lizard brain. And the frontal lobe where the higher order thinking is happening, which I usually call the human brain, like that's where the thinking happens. But when you're in fight or flight mode, you can't get to that region of the brain. And that's purposeful because when you're in fight or flight mode, you're not supposed to think, you're supposed to flee or fight. And so when I pause... And I take a nice deep breath and I calm my body down. I come out of fight or flight mode. And the way I think of it is I've told my body I am safe. And then I can think, what do I want or need now? Or higher power, what would you have me do now? Or who can I call? Or is there a piece of literature that I can grab a hold of? Or is there a slogan that comes to mind? But if I'm not pausing, I can't do that. And I will tell you, Spencer, learning to pause was like learning to climb Mount Everest for me. It was so hard. I've talked about this before, but I have a friend who actually went and got a little pause button tattooed on her wrist. (laughs) So that when she was in the middle of something, she could look down and say, oh, yeah, touch and pause herself. Like physically pause herself. That well, if that works, I'm not a tattoo yeah, person, but me neither. If that, yeah. it's such a brilliant idea, though. I can see it. I can touch it. Yeah, yeah. I think the way that it happened for me was when I got into recovery. I started to hear and learn that pausing was a thing, and I'm like, oh, that's a great idea. I have no idea how to do it. <laughs> So then what happened was I was like, oh, hey, that thing three weeks ago, I could have paused then. Good to know. And then, oh, that thing like a week ago, I could have paused then. And then that thing three days ago, I could have paused. So I saw the time closing between when the thing happened, when I realized I could pause and I got all excited, like, oh, maybe I'm going to actually be able to pause like before the thing happens. And that like that happens sometimes, but it didn't happen every time. So it's like this stop, start, stop, start, one step forward, two steps back, three steps forward, one step back kind of thing, the way that it happened. But then when I started getting much more purposeful about spending time thinking about, okay, if that scenario did not go the way I would have wanted it to do, what could I have done there? Very frequently, I could have paused. Now, I would say like I'm above 90% in terms of my ability to pause in situations when a pause is probably a a good idea. Mm -hmm. But learning how to do it was so, so hard. But I think that process is really the process of all of the behavior change. Like you learn it to think. You don't necessarily know how to do it, but you hear, oh, that's a thing that humans can do. And then you start to think, maybe I could do that. And then you start to think about scenarios where you could do it. And then occasionally you can do it, but sometimes you can't. And then you get better at it. And then you can do it more frequently and more frequently. And that's how it works. That's progress, not perfection. It absolutely is. After a short break, we will continue with our lives in recovery, where we talk about how recovery works in our daily lives and in our meetings. I asked you to bring some music with you. What's the first one you picked? So the first one is called The Reason by Hoobastank. And I picked this song because one of the things we do in ACA in reparenting ourselves is we cultivate a relationship with our inner child. And I heard the lyrics of the song and I knew immediately this was a song for my inner child. And some of the words go like this. 
I found a reason for me to change who I used to be, a reason to start over new, and the reason is you. And I just organically, for about a year, started singing that song along with the YouTube video to my inner child. Like I literally had a picture of me when I was little and sang it. And I didn't even realize until maybe two years later that that was partly me reparenting myself. And it was very healing. So that's why I love that song. In this section of the podcast, we talk about our lives in recovery. How have we experienced recovery recently? You've been talking a lot, so I'll give you a pause. I was thinking about this. I'm actually recording a couple of podcasts in a row, so not much has happened since the last one, but a lot has happened also. I think I mentioned this last time, but I work with the high school youth at my church, and on Sunday, one of the girls in the class expressed a deep sorrow that a friend of hers had gone missing, that her friend was last seen out by the bus stop of the school on Friday, and nobody had seen her since then. On Tuesday, I think, I saw the news that she had been found and she was dead. Oh, goodness. What I did was to reach out to my fellow advisors and to the ministerial staff at church to ask what can we do to help support her, to provide some pastoral care for her, and probably for the other youth in the group, some of whom may have known this girl, some of whom may just be freaked out by it, even if they didn't know her. So we are going to change the plan for what we were going to do on Sunday. And I'm just getting emotional thinking about this. We're going to open a space for the youth in the group to be there to talk about what they're feeling if they want to, and to know that they're with people who care about them and support them. And that's what we can do. I know as a recovering codependent, I can't fix her pain. It's not mm -hmm. my job to fix her pain, but I can provide that so needed, I know from my own experience of loss, that so needed human contact no. That reminder that other people love me. I remember another time when, in this case, I was with seventh graders, also in a church. And something had happened in the world that affected me, as I found out, affected a lot of the seventh grade. What are you in seventh grade? You're 11 or 12 or something. Mm -hmm. But they were affected by this event. And again, we set aside whatever we had planned for the day. I didn't really know it was going to go this way. I just said at the beginning, I said, I want to give us some time to talk about how this event has affected us. And you can say as much or as little as you want. We spent our whole time together going around the circle and just continuing to go a little deeper and a little deeper. And that was so powerful for me and hopefully for them as well. And I heard things come out of the mouths of these 12-year-olds that were so mature. I don't expect an 11 or 12-year-old to 
to have a clear view of the world. But some of these kids did. It was really amazing. And some of them were confused. And they had questions. So that is a thing that I can do. I wouldn't have been there without recovery because I came back to my faith about the same time I came into 12-step recovery, both of which provided something that I needed and didn't know I needed until I found it, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I do. So I wouldn't have been there without recovery. So recovery works in my life in sometimes mysterious ways and sometimes ways that seem so ordinary now. But Mm -hmm. when I step back, I can recognize that I'm using tools that I learned over the years that that I have been Mm -hmm. working this program. Yeah. So that's what I have to share today. How is recovery working in your life now? I had a gigantic insight in the last week that is huge. I've mentioned that we reparent ourselves in the ACA program. And the way that I've thought about that for the longest time is that reparenting yourself is essentially learning how to love yourself, how to take care of yourself as if you are beloved, because you are. And so it could be as simple as I just take really good care of myself, but it could be as detailed as you cultivate this inner cast of characters, an inner loving parent, an inner critical parent, inner child, inner teenager, and maybe you name them and you have all these interactions and anything in between those two different things. And I've been working in, there's a relatively new piece of literature called the Loving Parent Guidebook. So I've been doing more very purposeful parenting work. And last weekend, I'll skip all the things that were the impetus for this, but Friday night, I got the impulse to do some non-dominant handwriting, which is one of the ways that you can tap into your inner child. I don't understand how it works. I don't care. I just know that it does. So I started writing to my inner child. And I was asking her about money because I've had all these money things go on. And she was like, yeah, it really scares me. I feel like I have to be grown up and adult about it. And I wrote back and I said, I actually am going to take care of that. But I know what you mean about being scared. I get scared sometimes too. Do you want me to tell you what I do? And she said, yes. And then she wrote me and said that she wants an allowance every week and she wants to go shopping. So I was like, all right, I'll start with $5 a week. I can't promise you I'm going to take you shopping every week. I went to bed that night and I woke up and it it felt like the middle of the night. I think it was more like 5 a.m. And I had this, I'm going to call it a dark night of the soul. I don't even remember what the thoughts were, but I was scared, scared, scared. So I started praying, praying, praying. And then all of a sudden, Spencer, I had this cascade of memories, almost in order, of every single job I ever had before I got into recovery and how I either had trauma or very serious drama Mm -hmm. involved in every job. None of these things ever came up in any of the five times I have done the steps. And I've done them three times in ACA and two times in OA. And I was like, Like, how is it possible that this many events all tied to my work life have never come up before? So what I did immediately was I literally video recorded the whole, like what came to mind because I wanted to just remember everything. I reached out to my sponsor, like I reached out to another human being, which is not something I ever did before. And I said, this just happened. I'm going to let you know if I need to talk. I'm definitely going to talk to her about it, but I didn't feel like I needed to call her right away. 
But in the ACA book, there is something called the workplace laundry list. And there's a whole chapter about issues that come up at work. And I found that somewhere I got from somebody an inventory on the workplace laundry list. So I'm going to use that inventory and go through all of these incidents. And then I'm certain that there are a number of resentments embedded in those incidents. And so I'm going to do the resentment inventory from the AA big book. So I have these tools that I did not have before, and I have people to support me. I think I heard a phrase not too long ago, and I feel like I've used it like 15 times in the last two weeks, but it's a new level, a new devil. Hmm. So when we peel away the layers of the onion, there's something different in every layer. What shocks me is the enormity of the size of this, because there's a pattern through a large part of my life. I mean, our work life as adults is half of our waking life. And so to have something so huge come up is rather shocking to me, but I'm so grateful that it has come up because then I can deal with it. I'm guessing there's a pattern in there that has to do with me that I haven't seen yet. And then who knows? But I'm assuming based on past experience, there will be some amends that will be needing to come out of this. Just guessing. Or maybe amends to yourself. Yes, absolutely. Okay, before we move on, I want to give you a moment to talk about, you have a podcast, you mentioned it, but let's put a little box around that and say, what is your podcast? Where can people find it? Sure. Um, Sure. What's it about? So, Okay, so it's Fragmented to Whole, Life Lessons from 12-Step Recovery. The episodes are typically just 10 to 20 minutes long, and the vast majority of them are me sharing my experience, strength, and hope of recovery. Starting at episode 100, I started. I had guests on my 100th episode as a way to celebrate, and then every 10th episode, I have a guest. It's always someone in recovery, and they just basically share their experience, strength, and hope. On those episodes, it's very similar to going to a meeting and having a speaker speak. When I share on the rest of the episodes, it's a very specific topic. So things like boundaries. Actually, I have 20-something episodes specifically about boundaries. I've talked a lot about victim mentality, about letting go of unrealistic expectations, all kinds of healthy behavior, my top three tools of recovery. Lots of it has to do with mindset shifts and things that I've learned in recovery. And I very specifically decided that I wanted to debate on specific topics because a lot of the recovery podcasts I had listened to by the time I started mine, which was almost four years ago, I really only listened to people's shares and meetings. So they could talk about all kinds of things. But let's say I wanted to hear about acceptance. I couldn't find one about acceptance. So I wanted to have it so people could search for it. And I just, I found the whole serendipitous series of events that led to me having the podcast. One of which was I do a lot of outreach. I did a lot more in the beginning. I still do quite a bit of outreach and recovery because it strengthens my recovery. I want to help other people too. But when I'm talking recovery, I'm not acting out. And I found myself saying a lot of the same things over and over again. And I had reflected back to me that somehow when I share, it's meaningful to people. I'm like, I'm just talking. I don't know, you know, what it is. 
And people find it helpful. And as I said to you at the beginning, I do swear a lot. So if you don't like swearing, you probably don't want to listen to my podcast. But I will also say when I meet clients who are people, basically all of them come to me for because they heard me on my podcast. When we get on our first call, they always say, I feel like I know you. And I'm like, do you listen to my podcast? And they go, yes. And I'm like, then you do know me because I'm 100% me on my podcast. So it's really life lessons from 12-step recovery. Yeah. I After you wrote to me and told me about it, I did start to listen to it. And I definitely connected with a lot of what you're talking about because, yeah, it's about recovery. I know I listened to the two episodes about the laundry list. And then did you have one about the other laundry list? Yeah. yeah. So the first one was about the laundry list and the second one was about the other the laundry, other laundry list. list. Okay. Yeah. So the two yeah. episodes about the laundry yeah. lists. Yeah. One thing I do want to say is another reason why I wanted to share the podcast is, as I mentioned, I did so much self-work before recovery and it was just minuscule in terms of the change in my life compared to recovery. So there is so much wisdom in 12-step recovery that's just not making it out there into the world. And there are plenty of people who are never going to find recovery, maybe don't even ever need it, or people that need it are never going to get there. Let's get the wisdom out there to the world. And I get most people that listen to my podcast are in recovery, but I've met a few, I've had clients that are in, that are clients of mine that were never in recovery. And now that I think about it, I'm pretty sure all of them are in recovery now that they started working with me. <laughs> I'm looking ahead. As I mentioned earlier, i am actually got several episodes recorded or recording that are not out yet. And so when I start to look ahead and say what's coming up and, you know, what I don't know is what's going to be coming up like three weeks from now when this podcast is actually published that I can ask for people to contribute to. But I can say... All the time, we welcome your thoughts, your share. You can join our conversation. Leave us a voicemail. Send us an email. I love your voice, but send us an email if you can't. With your feedback, your questions, your, your experience, strength, and hope. And Barb, how can people do that? You can call and leave us a voicemail at 734-707-8795. Call right now to 734-707-8795. You can use the voicemail button on the website to join the conversation from your computer. You can also send a voice memo or email to feedback at therecovery.show. We'd love to hear from you, share your experience, strength, and hope, or your questions about today's topic of boundaries. If you have a topic you'd like us to discuss, let us know. If you would like advance notice for some of our topics so that you can contribute to that topic, you can sign up for our mailing list by sending an email to feedback at therecovery.show. Put email in the subject line to make it easier to spot. And the website where we have all the information about the show is therecovery.show. Mostly what you'll find there is notes for each episode, maybe the outline that we worked from, links to the books, the readings. In this case, I'll definitely have a link to your podcast. There's also videos for the music. And there's some links to other recovery podcasts and websites. And now we'll take a little break before we dive into the mailbag. And our second musical selection, which is available on the website, is what? It's called Second Chance by Shinedown. 
And right around the time that I found the reason I found this song. And so this song, there are some words in there that say, tell my mother, tell my father, I've done the best I can to make them realize this is my life. Sometimes goodbye is a second chance. And the way I thought of it was that when I was singing that, after I sang to my inner child, I was singing this kind of to my parents. Both of my parents are deceased, but I am differentiating myself from this family. And just like with the reason and who mistake, I just organically stopped doing it. I did this process for about a year and then I just stopped. Got some feedback this week. We'll start with a voicemail from Pat. Hi, and here's this is Pat from the West Coast. One more share. You did your recent episode on loss and grief. And it keeps coming up over the years. You hear someone call in about what it is to lose their alcoholic and what that means. For me, my first husband died about three years ago from alcoholism-related illnesses. And I just remember we did an episode on Al-Anon dreams a long time ago. And I shared there on one thing that was very positive and hopeful. And I had a dream just last week that really impacted me. It was a crazy dream with all kinds of good guys and bad guys. And he was supposed to be on the bad guy's side, but he's really on the good guy's side. And I didn't know any of that until the very end, at the very end of the dream, somebody brought him into a neighboring room, not into the room where I am, but into a room nearby where I can hear his voice. And he's saying to them, I kept trying to page her. I kept trying to page her. And he was talking about trying to get in touch with me. A long time ago, I used to wear a pager. He was saying the number, and it was not the right number. So here it is, three years later. And a dream can just bring me right back into another stage of grief. This one seems to be really focused on compassion for him. He sounds lonely in the stream and isolated and reaching yeah. out. And I did always love him. I felt like I loved him at the end like a family member, not like a spouse, but like a family member. I've told this dream about six times now, and every time it brings me to tears. And I think what that is a great deal of compassion for what he experienced in his life. And something I've had to let go of and feel that I have, which is a certain amount of regret that I didn't have Al-Anon in my toolkit when I was married to him. I only found it at the very end of 25 years of marriage. So there's an Al-Anon dream for you, and there's some grief. And I think it doesn't matter where that person ends up in your life. They can be completely remote from you. They're are long-term things that stick around. They're finding joy in them also. My daughter, near the end of his life, has been quite estranged from him, and she never became in contact with him again. She said that she had finally moved through all of her grieving 
and came to a place where she was remembering the good things about her relationship with him and the good things he was when he was parenting her. I think it's like so many things. We work through it. It's like doing four step. We don't do it only once. We do it many times. And each time it's new discoveries and new angles and new maturation and experience that we bring to it. But I think grief is like that also, that each time we come back and revisit our grief for a relationship or a person or a situation that we've lost, I'm currently facing my husband's health is slowly chipping away. Then we get to face it multiple times and bring our new experience and our new maturation and our new growth to each of those new stages and revisitation of grief. So thank you so much, Master. Your contribution to the world is invaluable. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you, Pat, for sharing that dream and for your thoughts on how grief recurs, comes up in new ways. I definitely recognize that in myself. So, yeah, thank you for calling. Kristen left us a voicemail. Hi, this is Kristen. I'm just calling to leave some feedback on the podcast you did about inclusion. I just wanted to thank you for having the speaker on and I do think it was brave and I'm very grateful that you did this. I am just a white woman privileged as far as uh, face the same things that women of color do and I think this is an important topic and I know it's not maybe a topic that everyone appreciates but I am glad that minority voices are heard, that there is a place that they can be heard, and I'm so glad that there is an offering, at least one, in the country for people of Asian descent who live here. And yeah, I just wanted to tell you thank you for airing that, and I appreciate it. Thanks, bye. Thank you, Kristen, for your feedback. Maria called. Hello, my name is Maria. I'm from Pennsylvania. And I was first listening to the September episode on Co Crazy. It was a fantastic episode. Been a long time listener of the podcast. Anyhow, this part of the episode really resonated with me and I wanted to just bring it up for maybe a recommendation for a future topic for an episode. And that was that concept of character defect versus trauma response. I, I really don't know if past the time what I have going on is a trauma response. And if I'm acting a certain way, just because of years of being traumatized by my qualifier's behavior, or it's just, just me. <laughs> a lot of times it's just me. Or if this is just the way I'm acting because I'm being triggered by a historical thing that I experienced. Anyhow, I'd really love to unpack that in a, in a podcast. I'd love to hear you go through that in a podcast and maybe have a speaker or some readings or whatever. But that was brought up at, in that episode on Co-Crazy, which was a phenomenal episode, by the way. All the episodes are awesome, but this was a really good one. And would love to hear more about it. So just a suggestion or a recommendation or whatever. Thank you for all you do. Love the recovery show. Have a great day. 
Maria, thanks for calling. And that was a good episode, the co-crazy episode. I had first heard about trauma response as maybe an alternative for character defect from Andrea, who has a podcast called Adult Child and who was on the Recovery Show episode 367, which was titled The Gift of Pain. I might see if she'd like to come back and talk about this idea of trauma response, or maybe somebody else would like to join me to dig into that a little bit. So thanks for calling. We got a voicemail from Megan. Hi, Spencer. My name is Megan, and I just recently started listening to your podcast. I found it in a time of crisis when my, I'm going to say initial qualifier, because I am now my own qualifier, relapsed and used to put our infant, now toddler son, in danger with his vision. But I'm listening to podcast number 365, and I just finished 364 and found a lot that resonated with me. And I especially resonated with what Greta had said about new Al-Anon members. And I would be very interested in participating in this because I feel like I am still learning the ropes. And I've only been in Al-Anon for three weeks now. And I have found it very useful. And one of my Al-Anon group members has said that they're a long-established group and they really enjoyed having a newcomer because it made them realize that we're, we are still all here together and going through recovery together. And sometimes it takes a newcomer to snap everybody back into the why of our being here. But I wanted to thank you also for the availability of your podcast and how much you've already done for me in the past three weeks and what your listeners and what your respondents have done for me as well. So not just a thank you to Spencer, but thank you to everybody that's listening and contributing to Spencer's podcast. Have a wonderful day. Thanks, Spencer. Thanks, Megan, for calling. Thanks for your feedback. And as we say, keep coming back. It works if you work it. Glad to hear that you are finding value here and in your meetings. Finally, we got an email from Audrey who writes, Spencer and fellow hosts, I have been in the program for just over two months. I don't get to attend as many meetings as I would like, but I do get to listen to podcasts all day at work. And the recovery show is by far my favorite. Thank you so much for what you do. This has truly saved my sanity on a handful of tough days in the last two months. My favorite episode so far was number 387, Co-Crazy, with Dr. Sarah Michaud. The discussions you had about fear driving us and making decisions for us cracked my mind wide open, and I immediately bought her book. I'm so grateful to belong to a fellowship of thoughtful, compassionate, vulnerable, and brilliant people. A million thanks, Audrey. Well, thank you, Audrey, for writing. I will forward your good words about the episode to Sarah. Thank you again, Barb, for coming and sharing your experience, strength, and hope with me and with everybody who's listening. I did ask you to bring music that's meaningful to your recovery, and we've heard a couple of pieces already that I totally see the connection. What's your last one that you picked for this episode? So I just want to first say thank you so much, Spencer, not only for inviting me on, but for the incredible service that you are doing to the world 
And I want you to remember that these podcast episodes live in perpetuity. So this is going to be carrying the message for years to come. The third song is called Try by Colby Calais. And for me, what's more important than the words is what you see visually in the video. Okay. Which is her and a bunch of women that have makeup on and they're stripping the makeup off and talking about how you don't have to try. Like you're basically okay just the way you are. And as someone whose body has been utterly transformed from losing over a hundred pounds, the idea that I can be okay with myself just the way I am is amazing. And I've deeply internalized that in a way that I don't know that many other people who haven't gone through the physical transformation I have gone through can really understand. And so this song really speaks to that for me. Thank you for listening. And please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem you are facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace grow in you one day at a time.